Let me invite you this morning to open up God's Word with me uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14 this morning as we continue our journey uh, there. Uh, Till He returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand, here in the power of Christ we'll stand. That's very much, I think, a message, a call that's at the heart of the book of Revelation. Till Christ returns... We're called us home. We're called to stand in His power. We're called to stand with Him. We're called to trust Him and to serve Him. We've got a lengthy text uh, this morning. I'll be uh, honest with you. We'll begin in chapter 14, verse 14, and we'll go through the end of chapter 16. We'll read most of that uh, text during our time uh, together. A lengthier text than we're probably accustomed to. Um, but I want to read most of it because as uh, a professor Uh, used to remind uh, his students, and me being one of them, God promises to bless his words, not yours. So we're going to read his word today. We're going to hone in uh, on it. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open up to Revelation 14. You can find this text on page 999 of uh, a pew Bible. I know you just sat down, but let me invite you to join me standing again, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's word. And then I promise you I'll give you plenty of time to sit back down on that padded pew. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 14, John writes, he says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple that is the tabernacle of the covenant law and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues that were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. 
read a portion of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Let's pause there and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we need you. We need you to speak to us this morning. Father, we need you to guide us. We recognize that your word is good. Father, your word is truth. And your Holy Spirit is with us and your spirit is a guide. So Lord, guide us now. Give us clarity. Give us conviction. Move among us. Teach us. Instruct us. Apply these truths to our lives so that we might stand with Christ until he returns or calls us home. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, we've gathered and we pray and we preach. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I'm convinced that fairly often when we open the Bible and we read the scriptures, we encounter truth in such a way that ought to make us seriously reflect on the question, do I really believe the words of this book? Do I really believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for correcting and rebuking and teaching and training and righteousness. You see, if we believe that message, if we believe what the Bible says about itself, then we have to take all Scripture seriously. We have to consider unpleasant truths, perhaps, and difficult texts, of which today's is one of them. And essentially, the picture provided here is that the time has come. What time? The end of time and the beginning of eternity. See, there's all sorts of theories out there in the world today about how the world is going to end, how the earth is going to uh, be destroyed as we know it. And of course, many of these have been dramatically depicted by Hollywood. Things like alien invasions that wipe out human life, nuclear uh, warfare on a massive scale that destroys the earth and makes the planet uninhabitable. Global warming that destroys the atmosphere, eliminating that necessary protective layer. A meteorite collision that rocks earth like a massive earthquake. But the Bible is clear how the earth as we know it is going to end. The Lord doesn't tell us when, but he tells us how and he tells us why. And that's the subject of our text for today. And one truth that is absolutely certain here, absolutely clear here, and throughout Revelation, uh, for that matter, throughout all of God's Word, is this, that God judges sin. That God judges sin. And what we're reading about here is what ultimately happens when Jesus returns to judge a sinful world. Jesus is the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge that's depicted here in Revelation 14 and 15 and 16 and in the chapters that, that follow. And church, even though this and other similar texts are difficult to read, 
difficult to hear, difficult to digest. We know, I think, its message to be true. You see, if God doesn't judge evil, he's not really much of a God. God doesn't judge evil. He's not very good or he's not very powerful. But the Bible declares that he is good and he is powerful. And if we truly know him, then there ought to be a longing in us as his people for evil to end. There ought to be a longing for the wars to end. There ought to be a longing for the child abuse and the gang violence and the pornography and the school massacres to end. There ought to be a longing for the human trafficking and the abortions, the adultery, the malignancy, the divorces, the devastating tornadoes and the destructive tsunamis, the terrorist attacks, the rapes, the persecution, the oppressive regimes. Church, the righteous judge will soon bring these to an end. Evil will, according to God's word, come to an end, but it will only come to an end at God's final judgment. And as in much of Revelation, there are clear allusions here in this text to other biblical texts that help clarify what is being conveyed here. Other texts that suggest to us that this Son of Man who is seated on a cloud, chapter 14, verse 14, is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. See, Son of, son of Man was a, a popular title that Jesus used in His own ministry to refer to himself but the vision here reflects one of daniel's visions centuries before jesus showed up on earth prophet daniel writes in daniel chapter 7 verse 13 he says in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence in the context of of daniel the ancient of days god gives the son of man an everlasting dominion An eternal kingdom that will not pass away. And of course, that kingdom is the kingdom of the Messiah. The kingdom of God's Son, Jesus the Christ, the eternal King. Jesus also used this same image in His own teaching, His own preaching. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uh, taught. He taught a message on the end of time. A message that John, the author, the human author of Revelation would have heard and Perhaps remember, Jesus taught there, he said, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. A clear reference to Christ's return. His return in glory, his return in power. And John depicts him here with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, implying that he is a king and he's a judge. In chapter 14, verse 15, an angel leaves the heavenly temple and delivers a message from the Father in heaven to the Son, essentially saying, Jesus, the time has come. It's time. It's time for the spiritual harvest. And here, John may be referring to a couple different harvests. Scholars aren't really sure. He may be referring to a harvest of the righteous in verses 15 and 16, contrasted with the harvest of the wicked in verses 17 and following. But the emphasis is clearly on the latter never used a wine press before, but function is fairly self-evident, I think. They extract juice from crushed grapes during winemaking. Popular biblical image for judgment. Recalling Joel's words and Joel's vision of the day of the Lord when God would execute judgment on the nations. Joel chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Let the nations be roused. 
Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. He says, come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. John picks up on this. He uses this imagery once again. He recycles this imagery to, to, uh, to depict the day of, of God's judgment. And once again, John's portrayal of judgment is like a horror movie. It's gripping and it's graphic. According to this account, juice doesn't flow from the wine press. But blood does. It ties the horse's neck. For 1,600 stadia, or about 180 miles. The point is incredible loss of life and utter devastation. John's symbolic way of describing the judgment that awaits those who oppose Christ and His kingdom. The judgment that awaits the world. Jesus is the righteous judge. But notice in verse 20 that the judgment takes place outside the city. Outside the city, many pointing out that this suggests that God's people are spared. Of course, we know that to be true from Scripture, that God's people are spared His judgment because His one and only Son took it for us. So friend, if you are one of God's people, if, if you are one who is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, then this final and horrific outpouring of God's judgment described here is not for you. It is his judgment on an evil world and the people of the world who live in rebellion against him. Church, Jesus is the righteous judge who spares his people and who prepares to destroy evil. He's a righteous judge who spares his people, those who identify with him, those who follow him, those who trust in him. And yet he prepares to destroy evil. Chapter 15 begins and ends with mention of these seven final plagues portrayed in the Bible as bowls expressing God's wrath poured out on a sinful world. But sandwiched in between uh, is another portrait of heaven, and it's a welcome portrait. It's almost as if uh, the Spirit says, John needs a break. Enough of all this judgment and wrath. Give him a portrait. Encourage him by what's going on today in heaven. A message that we need. And so he does. The victorious followers of the Lamb are portrayed here in chapter 15 playing music and singing a song of praise. A chorus of redemption to the Lord God Almighty. The same choir, I think, depicted in chapter 14. The 144,000, they're in heaven protected from God's wrath. They've been delivered. Thus they sing their song of redemption known only by those who had been redeemed from the earth. And what song do they sing? The Bible says, John says, their song resembles the song of Moses. For just as God delivered the Israelites from the plagues by the blood of the Passover lamb, so now Christians recognize that they too have been delivered from these plagues by the blood of the true Passover lamb. In church, indeed, the, the plagues that follow in chapter 16 recall those plagues in Egypt. They hearken back to that account. But here, they're not local in scope, they're not limited to a nation, they're not limited to Egypt, they're universal in scope, even more severe than the seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments of which we've already read. These judgments usher in the end of history, culminating in the final conflict between Christ 
himself and Satan. In other words, history is moving somewhere. It's moving toward its anticipated end. The realized reign of Jesus Christ and the defeat of all those who reject and oppose him. So friend, I I know it often appears as if this world is spiraling out of control. The chaos of Evil on brink of collapse, corruption and cancer and depression and disease, terrorism and tragedy. But there is a king who is reigning. John tells us again, Spirit tells us again, there is a king who is on the throne, one who is sovereign over Satan, one who sees both your tears and your triumphs. He is unmatched and he is in charge. There is absolutely nothing he doesn't see. And he is moving history toward the certain fulfillment of his glorious and good plans. John says it's happening in God's perfect time when the grapes are ripe. And as the image of the bowls may suggest, it's happening in response to the prayers of God's people. Prayers for vindication. Prayers for justice. Prayers for the realization of redemption. Prayers for the end of evil. God is sovereign, but he uses the prayers of his people to advance his purposes in human history. Friends, Jesus is the righteous judge. He's the righteous judge who spares his people, who prepares to destroy evil, and who will swiftly execute justice. That's the portrait here. That's the picture here. That's the big picture truth here. Jesus is the righteous judge who spares his people, prepares to destroy evil, and who swiftly executes justice. Justice, as we're reading through this portion of God's God's word, encounter judgments again and again, and pictures of heaven again and again. But it's almost as if once this begins to unfold here, once the bowls begin to unfold, it happens rather quickly. And notice that these judgments end in a battle. Final two bowls depicted in chapter 16, the sixth and seventh bowl represent that promised end-time battle sometimes referred to as Armageddon. Just look at what the Bible says about it. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. John says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, a benediction, a message, a promise from God to His people. Look, He says, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. He says, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found from the sky. Huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. This passage ought to humble us. Catch our 
extension and cause us to bow before one true living God. It ought to cause our hearts to break over those who oppose Him, who do not trust in Him. There's a battle that's depicted here between the dragon and the lamb. A battle portrayed as a battle between Jesus and His armies, both demonic and human, and Christ and His armies. A battle that's real, a battle that's bloody, that's awful. But a battle whose outcome is certain before it ever even begins. Satan and his beasts are no match for the Lamb. It's a one-sided, triumphant execution of judgment and justice. Friends, Jesus is the righteous judge who spares his people, prepares to destroy evil, and will swiftly execute justice. Now that's the 30,000 foot view of the Bible's message here. We could slow down. We could spend a lot of time unpacking these judgments and allusions to other Accounts in Scripture, and it's a rich account. There's a place and a time to do just that. But for our purposes this morning, we need to hone in on the clear and overarching truths. And one of the key truths that resounds in this text again and again and again and throughout the Bible is that God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. Despite how we often react to the thought of His judgment, His wrath is just. It is justified. It is deserved. The heavenly choir sings in chapter 15, verse 3, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Chapter 16, verse 5, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Chapter 16, verse 7, and I heard the altar respond. I think a reference to God's people who have gone on before, particularly the martyrs crying out, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Just be honest, friends. I, I I don't know why God operates the way He does oftentimes. I don't know why God allows certain things and at other times does not allow things. I I don't have good answers for miscarriages and malignancies, for concentration camps and re-education camps, for oppression and slavery and injustices here on this earth. I don't know why God operates the way He does. I don't know why the wicked often prosper and the righteous often suffer. But I do know that just and true are His ways. Just and true are the ways of God. I know that He never treats anyone unjustly or unfairly and that in the end, those who fail to worship the true and living God will receive exactly what they deserve. That's the message of His Word. And perhaps the most shocking truth to us, but one that we need to hear, is that this is actually what we deserve. Friends, since God is just, we deserve His wrath. Since God is just, we deserve His his wrath. We deserve His judgment. We tend to shirk when we hear the word wrath, but God's wrath gives His grace significance. And hear me on this. The gospel itself is childish and foolish and unnecessary if there is no judgment for sin. Love and mercy and kindness are fairly meaningless without wrath. Salvation is no salvation if it isn't salvation from something. But we need to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of God's wrath. See, God's wrath isn't like the irritable and 
angry father who suddenly snaps at his children without warning. I'll be the first to confess. Sometimes my sin shows up that way. But not our Heavenly Father, not the Lord's. Nor is his wrath like the athlete who's having a bad day on the basketball court, can't get anything to fall, and so he quickly unleashes a a string of cursing threats to the nearest fan mocking him. No, his wrath doesn't show up that way either. God's wrath is his righteous, holy antagonism against evil. It is the necessary and certain outworking of his commitment to justice and the elimination of evil. And church, we must never, ever, ever forget that we were evil. That we were sinners, lost in our sin, dead in our sin. That we were deserving of God's judgment and wrath. Paul says as much, very clearly, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. He says, as for you, church, as for you, believers. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, unbelievers. In case we're wondering who he's talking about, he tells us, verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is not popular doctrine. There's been a movement in recent decades to sort of wipe it out, to eliminate it, to not talk about it. But since God is just, if we take the Bible seriously, if we take the message of His Word seriously, we have to acknowledge that we deserve His wrath. And since He is merciful, since God is merciful, we do not deserve His love. We do not deserve His His love, if we deserve God's love, then we couldn't speak of Him as if He's merciful, for that would be a contradiction of terms. We do not deserve to be rescued from His judgment, none of us. We do not deserve redemption. We do not deserve reconciliation and forgiveness and the eternal enjoyment of unhindered access to God Most High. And yet, in Christ Jesus, that is exactly what He has given to us. Praise be to God. This story, the message, the gospel doesn't end after Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. It goes on. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He says, make no mistake about it. It is by grace, unearned, undeserved. It's by grace you have been saved. Church, we serve a God who chooses to love us. Despite the fact that we have not been very lovable. Despite the fact that we have rebelled against Him. A God who provides an avenue to spare us. A God who has taken His own wrath for us. A God who stood in our place enduring horrific judgment so we don't have to. What a God we serve. A God who so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not die, shall not experience His judgment but have eternal life. Words of Jesus Christ Himself calling for repentance and faith, calling for belief, calling sinners to believe in Him. Do you believe in Him? Do you believe in this God, this One who is just and righteous, just and true are His ways, yet merciful in the way that He has dealt with us? You see, Jesus is calling for faith. 
called for repentance and, and trust more than simple head assent or, or knowledge. It's a call to repent and to turn to Him, to turn toward Jesus, recognizing that He is Lord and striving to live for Him. It's a call to follow after Him. A call to be a disciple. A call to be a child of God. So let me pause and say, say a word to those who are among us this morning who are not trusting Jesus. Perhaps you've come today simply out of habit or guilt. Maybe you're searching for for truth. Maybe you're looking for answers for yourself. Whatever the case, friend, the, the Bible mentions no middle way. There's no part in and part out. There's no, I'll follow Jesus sometimes and the ways of the world other times. There are no half bowls in this text. This is not like nukes where you can get the big bowl or you can get a smaller bowl. There there is no middle, middle way. It's either following Christ or rejecting Him. It's either living for the eternal King of Kings or living in rebellion against the King. Where are you? His wrath is real. His judgment is just. It is certain. His judgment is coming. So unbeliever, heed the warnings and repent. Heed the warnings of the Scriptures and repent. Turn to Jesus in faith. The graphic depictions of God's wrath against sinners are intended to encourage repentance. They're intended to call unbelievers to repent. But the sad reality is that an encounter God's judgment, according to the text, They seldom do. Chapter 16, verse 9. They refuse to repent and glorify Him. Chapter 16, verse 11. They refuse to repent of what they had done. Verse 21. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. You see, those who refuse to repent and believe will ultimately get what they think they want. Life without God. So unbeliever, turn to Christ in faith today. Trust in Him for salvation. Repent and embrace life in Him. Be spared His wrath. Live for Him and long for His presence. A glorious and eternal paradise with God. A right relationship and intimate fellowship uninterrupted by human sin. Access to His presence and enjoyment of His love forever and ever and ever. God says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, He says those who are victorious, that's a key theme in Revelation, those who have genuine faith and live by their faith. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, he says. He says, I will be their God and they will be my children. Talking about the new heaven, the new earth. Life with him forever. But verse 8 ought to give us pause. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You see, real and deserved and horrific and eternal judgment awaits those who fail to believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? You trust in Jesus Christ. If the Bible is true, this is not a message that we can afford to play around with. Heed the warnings today and repent. And once you do, once you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, once you become a follower of the Lamb, then anticipate His return any day. Believer, anticipate Christ's return today. We don't, we don't know when. He's coming again. 
We don't, we don't know when Jesus is coming in. We, we can't afford to speculate or to postpone. But we, we don't know when he's coming again. But the word of God commands us to expect him soon. Jesus says as much in verse 15. He says, look, I come like a thief. Stay awake. Be alert. Be ready. And if we believe that Christ was coming today, how then might we live? How might we live? Who might we tell? Who, who do we need to tell? What sin, what idolatry, what immorality do we need to confess and flee from? Where might we invest? If we truly believe that Jesus may come today, where might we invest the remainder of our lives? Would we invest in living here in pleasure and luxury? Or would we invest in Christ's kingdom for all of eternity? Paul instructs us. He warns us. He cautions us. He advises us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, Christians, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. Friend, you have an opportunity today to trust Jesus, to live for Him, to follow the Lamb, to know that you are right with God, to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ in exchange for your sins that He bore on the cross. The opportunity today, say today is the day of salvation. Today is a day that I am going to follow the Lamb, that I am going to be made right with Him, that I am going to be restored and all that I'm going to live for Him. Live for Him. Trust in Him. Turn to Him. Follow Him today. For He's coming again. Trust the Lamb. Father, may we trust Jesus Christ. May we follow the Lamb. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, faith to believe. May we believe in You. Father, may May we follow Jesus' instruction to Jairus. Just believe. Lord, help us believe in you and take your word to heart and be overwhelmed with gratitude at your gospel of grace. Lord, that you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have showered us with your grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus took your wrath, that he took the wrath, that he took the judgment, that he took what we deserve, that he paid the penalty and the price for our sins so that we could be restored and forgiven and right with you. Father, may we build our lives on that message. And Lord, for anyone here today that has not believed that message, has not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, would you stir in them by the presence and power of your spirit, that today is the day to turn to you, to trust in Christ. May they trust in you. And Lord, may each of us live today and tomorrow and every day with faith in the Lamb, overwhelmed by your love, moved by your mercy, proclaiming your gospel and standing with Christ until until you return to call us home. 
It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.